Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. No breakthrough in today's talks between Russia and Ukraine. The two sides feuding over yesterday's bombing of a maternity hospital. The White House is warning that Russia may use chemical or biological weapons against Ukraine. It comes after the U.S. denies Russian claims that Washington is running biowarfare labs in Ukraine. The U.S. House of Representatives pledges $13.6 billion in Ukraine aid. The aid comes on top of funding to avoid a U.S. government shutdown. An EU summit is underway in France and two pressing issues are at hand. Ukraine's bid for fast-track entry into the bloc and the EU's reliance on Russian energy. No breakthrough in Ukraine-Russia talks today, according to Ukraine's foreign minister. The top diplomats from Moscow and Kyiv met in Turkey to discuss humanitarian corridors and a ceasefire. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Ukraine's foreign minister called on Russia Thursday to allow civilians to evacuate the besieged city of Mariupol through a humanitarian corridor. Dmitry Kaleba said they didn't reach an agreement. Unfortunately, Minister Lavrov was not in a position to uh, commit. Speaking in Turkey after talks with Russia's foreign minister, Kaleba said they also discussed a 24-hour ceasefire, but no progress on that either. I want to confirm once again that Ukraine did not surrender, is not surrendering, and will not surrender. We are ready for diplomacy. We are looking for diplomatic solutions. After the talks, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said the West is behaving, quote, dangerously by supplying weapons to Ukraine. He also said Russian President Vladimir Putin would not refuse meeting with Ukraine's president. I think everyone is well aware that President Putin never refuses contact. We just want these meetings to be organized and not for their own sake, but in order to focus on specific agreements. Meanwhile, the mayor of Mariupol is calling for a no-fly zone over Ukraine after a Russian airstrike reportedly hit a maternity hospital Wednesday. On Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said there were casualties. We have lost three people, including one child, a girl. There are 17 wounded. There are children, women and medical staff. Hours before the strike, a Russian spokeswoman said Ukrainian forces had expelled staff and patients from the hospital and equipped combat positions in it. NTD's been unable to independently verify the claims. Zelensky says Russia's assertion that the hospital had no patients is untrue. As for a no-fly zone, Putin warned last week he'd view any country that declares a no-fly zone over Ukraine as a participant in the armed conflict. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. According to the White House, Russia may launch a chemical attack on Ukraine. The Biden administration also warned of a biological weapons attack. It comes after the U.S. denied Russian claims that the U.S. is operating biological warfare labs in Ukraine. And now the mayor of a southern Ukrainian city, just under 100 miles east of Odessa, responds to the warning. He says he wouldn't put it past Putin-led Russia to do such a thing. I won't be surprised in that case. I won't be surprised if they use chemical ends and etc. Responding to Russia's claim, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki tweeted, This is all an obvious ploy by Russia to try to justify its further premeditated, unprovoked, and unjustified attack on Ukraine. Psaki called the claim preposterous. She said Russia could be using the claim to lay groundwork 
to use these types of weapons of mass destruction against Ukraine itself. Here's what the Russian foreign ministry had to say. We are confirming the facts that were unveiled during the special military operation in Ukraine that indicate an emergency cleanup of military biological programs by the Kyiv regime. They were carried out by Kyiv and financed by the United States of America. But John Kirby at the Pentagon dismisses the very idea of it all. The Russian accusations uh, are absurd, they're laughable. And, uh, you know, in the words of my Irish Catholic grandfather, a bunch of malarkey. There's nothing to it. It's classic Rus Russian propaganda. And, uh, and uh, I wouldn't, uh, if I were you, I, I, wouldn't give it, uh, I wouldn't give it a drop of ink worth, worth paying attention to. We are not, not developing biological or chemical weapons inside Ukraine. It's not happening. There are, however, biological research facilities in Ukraine, and the U.S. is working to protect those, according to a U.S. official. Senator Marco Rubio pressed the official on this. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100 percent it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. And the White House warned that the Russians may even employ a false flag operation to use chemical weapons on Ukraine. A Ukrainian student lived in a bomb shelter during the first 10 days of the Russia-Ukraine war. He's now in Poland, but the rest of his family remains in Ukraine. NTD spoke with this student who recently arrived in Warsaw, Poland. We arrived today in Poland and came to the bus shelter where people are coming by the thousand from Ukraine. Hundreds of volunteers are helping out, providing food and shelter and all kinds of other services like a phone if you need to call, the, call a loved one. We talked with the main organizer who told us about the efforts and the love and compassion that the Polish people are giving to the Ukrainian people. We met with my grandma who yesterday make, made it over the border. She told us she came right here and somebody helped her to get everything she needed and uh, meet with a family member of, of ours. A lot of things happening here, but this is not the real situation. The real situation is happening in Ukraine. And we talked with somebody who came from the war. In the first day of war, um, administration um, don't come to us, but they phone us and help us. Um, we organized our students and uh, go to their uh, down on the floor, like bombu uh, uh, The bomb shelter bomb shelter and uh, they have to leave for uh, uh, 10 days. Uh, I'm really lucky because uh, I sit on the uh, train Kiev Lviv, but uh, this train said uh, in the half of the way that uh, we're not uh, driving to Lviv, we will drive to, the, uh, to Poland. My family don't speak with me about five days because they don't have communication. They don't have energy, they don't have light, they don't have water. Every evening I write to them very big SMS how, what I think, what I, about my situation, what I do. And I, in, inside me I understand, maybe, I believe in that they, they hear me.
Tomorrow we're going to go to the border and bring you more news and more information about what's happening in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. NTD News, Dan Skorback, Warsaw, Poland. Here to give us an on-the-ground update from Ukraine is Professor Volodymyr Dubovik. He's based in Odessa, Ukraine. He says the situation in the country's south is complicated. While over 1,200 civilians are said to have been killed in the eastern city of Mariupol, the professor also alleges Russian attacks on hospitals and maternity wards will be classified as war crimes. He tells us more about the situation in south-central Ukraine. And then there is Odessa, my hometown, still to the east, which hasn't been attacked yet uh, for various reasons. Uh, Once the Russian attack uh, space is slower than they expected. Second of all, they're really afraid of amphibious sea landing operation because Odessa's uh, seacoast is very well fortified. And there have been even rumors about riots at Russian battleships who don't want to die within seconds of landing near Odessa. So situation in the south is complicated. That's where you have more Russian advances than in the north. But still, it really depends on where you are in the south. Some places are really in a terrible situation. Others are untouched, and some are really giving a good fight back to the occupiers. So you mentioned that there may be talk of some mutiny that could be happening amongst the Russian soldiers. Right. Right, there's been rumors about that uh, on many occasions, and now we're also hearing this from some prisoners of war that we've taken, at least 2,000 of those. Uh, I mean, they've been talking to Ukrainian media and Ukrainian investigators, of course, and they've been saying that, that the morale is really low, that a lot of people are questioning the whole thing. Why are we here? What are we doing there? There are no fascists here. I mean, these people are just uh, civilians, you know, and Ukrainian military is fighting bravely against us because they see us as invaders. Our officers, they tell us, told us that we would be seen as liberators, that people would come out to us with flowers and they would congratulate us as someone who brought them freedom. But on the contrary, Ukrainians are fighting for their freedom against those troops. Not to mention that some of those troops that Russians brought in are professionals with a lot of experience, but many of those are not. And they are 18, 19, 20-year-old guys, rookies, who have been brought uh, without any experience. And they are terrified. They, they are leaving their weapons. They are deserting. They are uh, destroying their own equipment, their tanks. And they are trying to, to escape towards the border with Russia and go back to Russia. So their morale is extremely low. And the, and the Ukrainian military is in a difficult situation, obviously, under fire. But the morale is really high because the people are defending their land. Yeah, of course, they're fighting for their lives, whereas the Russians are being told to go in and invade. That's true. Not for their lives, but for their land, for their freedom. They are defending their own towns. Many of them left their families and their kids behind their backs, in the, in the towns and cities behind their backs. So it's not some abstract conflict to them. It's not something they know exactly what they're defending. They know what's going to happen to those towns, because we already had many cases of massive rapes, including other war crimes being committed here in Ukraine and documented already. So uh, the, the definitely in terms of spirits, in terms of a civilizational fight here, the, 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 the truth, the light, you know, is on the Ukrainian side. A U.S. commanding general in Europe says Russia's invasion of Ukraine is exposing Russia's military shortcomings. He said so in an interview with CBS Mornings. And Russia has reportedly admitted to using conscripts in its invasion of Ukraine. 
A former sniper with the Canadian military is joining a group of foreign fighters in Ukraine, leaving his computer programming job and his family behind. That's after Ukraine's president sent out a call for foreign fighters. The veteran goes by the name Wally. He served with the Canadian military in Afghanistan between 2009 and 2011. He also traveled to Iraq as a volunteer to fight against ISIS in 2015. Wally is 40 years old. He told the CBC the hardest part of his decision to leave Canada was missing his son's first birthday. He told the press newspaper that he's short-circuiting Canadian politics by going to Ukraine. He says governments don't like what he is doing, but he feels appreciated greatly in Ukraine. The Ukrainian foreign minister has said that more than 20,000 people from 52 countries have come to Ukraine to fight against Russian forces. The U.S. House of Representatives voted to send $13.6 billion in aid to Ukraine as it battles invading Russian forces. This, along with $1.5 trillion to keep U.S. government programs operating through September 30th and to avoid agency shutdowns this weekend. The U.S. House voted to approve a massive spending package Wednesday that includes $13.6 billion in emergency aid for Ukraine. The first portion of the divided question is adopted. That's on top of $1.5 trillion in funding to avoid an imminent government shutdown and keep things running through September 30th. Aid for Ukraine has been receiving bipartisan support in Congress. The latest package will be split across military and humanitarian funding for its citizens, more than 2 million of whom have already fled the country. Meanwhile, House Democrats were forced to remove a roughly $15 billion COVID-19 aid initiative after some in the party objected to the way in which aid would have been distributed to individual states. The House also near unanimously passed legislation to ban U.S. imports of Russian oil in response to the Ukraine invasion. That bill registers congressional support for the oil ban just a day after U.S. President Joe Biden used his executive powers to impose it. It also calls for reviewing Russia's participation in some international trade programs like the World Trade Organization. The lawmakers abandoned an effort to add language revoking Russia's permanent normal trade relations status. That would have let the U.S. ratchet up tariffs on Russian imports above the lower levels enjoyed by members of the WTO. The Senate is expected to vote on the Ukraine aid and federal funding package later this week. SpaceX launched its Falcon 9 with 48 Starlink satellites aboard to low Earth orbit Wednesday. Time to let the American broomstick fly and hear the sounds of freedom. LD is go for launch. During launch countdown, a SpaceX controller said, time to let the American broomstick fly and hear the sound of freedom. This was a jab at Russia. The comment was in reference to a recent statement by the head of Roscosmos, Dmitry Rogozin. He claimed that a ban on Russian exports of rocket engines would force the U.S. to rely on brooms to get to space. Starlink is a space-based system that SpaceX has been building for years to bring Internet access to underserved areas of the world. The Biden administration is canceling more than $6 billion worth of federal student loan debt. On Wednesday, the U.S. Department of Education said it has identified 100,000 borrowers who are eligible for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. The program launched 15 years ago, but the Biden administration made changes to it in October. Now some borrowers have until October 31st to apply for loan forgiveness. 
For more information on student loan debt cancellation, visit the Department of Education's website at ed.gov. Minneapolis teachers and teacher aides picketed for a second day in a row on Wednesday. The action comes after their unions failed to reach an agreement with the state's largest district on a new labor contract. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. The Star Tribune newspaper reported that union leaders were set to return to the bargaining table on Wednesday, adding that classes are canceled for the duration of the strike. I teach writing. I can't teach writing with 80 kids in a classroom. I can't teach writing with 40 kids in a classroom. I got to have safe, stable schools for our students to come to. We got to have our staff paid for the work that they do. The work stoppage led Minneapolis public schools to cancel classes for 31,000 students on Tuesday, three weeks after unions representing the city's 4,500 teachers and education support professionals authorized the action. When I first started teaching, I had one or two support people in my classroom every hour, and now I can go weeks without seeing anybody other than me in my classroom. So it's just been a slow chip, chip, chip. Issues at the top of the list include teacher aid salaries, the union's demands for smaller class sizes, and better mental health support for students. Right now, all of society needs extra mental health supports, but after the last couple of years in COVID, I've never seen kids crying for help like they are anymore. We have, we run one psychologist per thousand students. Hundreds of teachers marched in front of schools, waving picket signs and chanting slogans. The unions are demanding what they consider a livable wage for education support professionals. Those staff members currently make an average of $24,000 a year. Like many have said before, I think we've, I've worked in the district for 12 years. Um, I think I've gotten one raise over those 12 years and we've slowly but surely just been chipped away to our breaking point where we have to be out here to have some change happen. The unions also want the district to reduce classroom sizes, boost diversity, and hire more social workers and counselors. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An election administrator in Texas's most populous county submitted her resignation following problems with last week's primary. About 10,000 mail-in ballots weren't counted and voting machines malfunctioned. Harris County Elections Administrator Isabel Longoria announced her resignation during a meeting of county commissioners. Longoria took responsibility for the problems that occurred during last Tuesday's election. She says she didn't meet her own standards. Her resignation came during a meeting which, at times, was contentious. Some officials and residents asked that she either resign or be fired. Those who spoke during the meeting said they dealt with a variety of problems. Much of the equipment wasn't working and lines were long. Both Republicans and Democrats were not happy with Longoria and wanted her replaced. Florida's House passed a bill Wednesday to create a special security office to investigate election crimes. It would establish an Office of Election Crimes and Security within Florida's Department of State to investigate election fraud. That office would employ 15 people. The measure also calls for 10 officers to be hired by the state's Department of Law Enforcement to probe election crimes. It will cost about $3.7 million. That's smaller than the 52-member force with a budget of $5.7 million Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proposed. DeSantis proclaimed the state passed its post-election audits with flying colors. The bill now moves to DeSantis' desk to be signed into law.
Attorneys for Jesse Smollett are asking an Illinois court to throw out the guilty verdict against the actor. A jury found the Empire actor guilty on five counts of felony disorderly conduct in December. Those charges were for making false reports to police that he was the victim of a hate crime in 2019. Smollett's attorneys say the verdict was not fair because the judge didn't allow the defense to ask questions during jury selection. They argued that this resulted in a jury with only one black juror in the case. Prosecutors were also not allowed to ask questions during that process. Smollett's sentencing hearing is less than two weeks away. His attorneys are asking for a new verdict of not guilty or a new trial. Still to come, memorabilia from the earliest days of Silicon Valley go up for auction, including rare signatures by the founders of Apple Computer. All that and more here on NTD News. Gas prices are still on the rise, and as people seek ways to cut down on gas expenses, public transit is becoming a popular alternative. Entity's Adelina Asultane has the details. As some gas prices hit a high of nearly $7 per gallon in the California Bay Area, some locals are looking for cheaper alternatives. Caltrain, a local public transit agency, jokingly suggested an innovative idea in a Twitter post. BART, like Caltrain, welcomes more people to choose public transportation as a cheaper alternative to driving. But we're not happy that prices are going up for people who are putting gasoline in their cars, but we are happy to welcome them to BART should they want to use public transportation and save money and save the environment at the same time. Allison said BART is working hard on upgrading its train stations. We rebuilt them, made them safer, more welcoming and more clean. Today we are at Berryessa North San Jose, last station on the BART train here in San Jose. You take the train from here all the way one hour to Embarcadero, San Francisco. That is only $5. It's half the price and half the time if you were to drive your car. Allison added that BART fares have remained the same over the past two years. Now that uh, you know people are paying so much money at the gas pump, we haven't had a price increase since January of 2020. Taking public transportation can cost half the price while avoiding notorious Bay Area traffic. Some Bay Area residents are riding BART for the first time. I need to go to San Francisco to do a, a small job. And um, because of the gas prices, I'm not, I'm not uh, taking my car right now. So I thought about taking alternate transportation. Locals say time spent on the road is a major factor in deciding on whether to take public transit. Gallon of gas is not something I even wanted to think about, so that's another reason actually. But the time was the main factor. But uh, gas is getting up there, so I think I'll be on BART for, for a while. I don't want to spend, you know, 90 bucks a tank. Emily Hodges, a South Bay resident, says she travels to Berkeley once a week, but no longer drives because... I drove a couple times and it was a pain. There was a lot of traffic and parking is hard to find, so this was just more convenient. Hodges added that she enjoys the train ride. It's nice, it's relaxing, and you don't have to drive. BART sees approximately 432,000 trips on weekdays and 126 million trips annually. During peak commute hours, nearly 25,000 people ride through the Transbay tube into downtown San Francisco. Adelina Soltane, NTD News, California. 
Delta Airlines is expanding its in-flight menu to give travelers who don't eat meat more options. Wednesday, the airline announced it was adding five vegetarian and plant-based items to its main menu. The new meal choices include the Impossible Burger, plant-based meatballs, and cauliflower cakes. The change means vegetarians no longer have to order ahead to get a special meal. Delta says the new menu items will be available on flights this month, around the same time the carrier plans to reintroduce hot meals to more customers. Whether you're an Apple fan or an avid collector, an auction is underway for items from the earliest days of Silicon Valley. Many of the items are related to Apple founder Steve Jobs, including one of his extremely rare signatures. Here's more. Memorabilia from the earliest days of Silicon Valley are going up for bid at RR Auction in New York. One of Apple founder Steve Jobs' exceptionally rare original signatures will be auctioned. This is a very early Apple check. What makes it really important is it's from July 1976 and it's made out to an electronics firm. And this payment of $3,430 is to pay for the parts for the Apple One computer. This is before they had any investors. What was really incredible, it's signed by both Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak very early in Apple. The, first the check is expected to be the top lot. Steve did not sign very many things. He didn't like to sign objects, so his signature is very rare. It's actually one of the, the rarest signatures that collectors are interested in. So anytime something comes up with Steve's signature on it, uh, it goes for a lot of money. To have both Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak sign a check is incredibly rare. Other Jobs memorabilia will be available, including one of his first job applications as well as his business cards. We have this Pixar business card from Steve Jobs. We have a lot of Steve Jobs business cards. They sell for a lot of money, but what makes this one really special is Steve Jobs slammed into someone's car on the Hollywood freeway and he got out and gave him the card and on the back, Steve Jobs has written out his information. So it's got a great story. You know, it's not just a business card. Items from California's early tech development days will be available too. One of the earliest computer mice will go up for sale. The first quarter put into the first arcade video game will be on auction, used on an Atari Pong video game. These items are being consigned to us by people from the Silicon Valley that were there when this whole computer revolution started. So these are very desirable. These particular computer items are museum quality items. The auction will conclude on March 17th. Australia will spend about $28 billion to expand its active military forces by a third. The government says they want to keep the country safe in an increasingly uncertain global environment. The biggest increase in the size of our defence forces in peacetime in Australian history. This is a significant vote of confidence in our defence forces but it's a significant recognition by our government, which has always been clear-eyed about the threats and the environment uh, that we face as a country, as a liberal democracy in the Indo-Pacific. If people think that the ambitions within the Indo-Pacific are restricted just to Taiwan and that there won't be knock-on impacts if we don't provide a deterrence effect and work closely with our colleagues and with our allies, then they don't understand the lessons of history. Australia has been boosting its defense spending over the past few years. This as the Chinese regime looks to step up its presence in the Indo-Pacific region. 
Last year, Australia entered into a deal to buy nuclear submarines from the United States and Britain. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has attacked the opposition party as being soft on the Chinese regime. Beijing is viewed by two-thirds of Australians as more of a security threat than an economic partner. Opposition leader Anthony Albance says Australia's national security interests must transcend the partisan divide. He sharply criticized the Chinese regime for offering Russia relief from sanctions. Former top prosecutor Yoon suk Yeol was elected South Korea's new president on Thursday. He defeated his chief rival in one of the country's most closely fought presidential elections. South Korea has a new president. The man taking the reins is Yoon suk Yeol. He keeps his core values, liberal democracy, market economy, and rule of law. And those common you know, values are the alliance with the, uh, the free world. Its stance is opposition of the China and North Korea. Yoon edged out the ruling Democratic Party's Lee Jae-myung by a fraction on Thursday. It's set to be the tightest race since South Korea began holding free presidential elections over three decades ago. We can expect a more uh, common sense of changes, like uh, the strong U.S.-ROK alliance and the strong um, stance towards China and North Korea. This election brings the political shift to the right in South Korea, with the incoming president vowing to teach what he calls rude boy North Korea leader Kim Jong-un, quote, some manners. The president-elect also seeks to expand alliance with U.S. and Japan, pushing South Korea to join the Quad, a strategic security dialogue between the U.S., Australia, Japan and India. After his victory on Thursday, he also said he would sternly deal with North Korea's misbehavior and reset ties with China, hinting at a hardline posture towards the two countries. There are a lot of anti-China sentiment in South Korea since uh, China raised lots of controversial issues during the Olympic and then before the Olympic. U.S. President Joe Biden was the first foreign leader to call Yoon to congratulate him on his election victory. And China also congratulated South Korea's president-elect, stressing hopes for better ties. On the other hand, North Korea's state media reported that leader Kim Jong-un paid a visit to his country's National Satellite Control Center on Wednesday, which is part of North Korea's missile program. South Korea's president-elect Yoon is to take office in May and serve a single five-year term. Coming up, museums in Ukraine are racing to save their most valuable collections from the war. Staff say it's impossible to assess the real damage until the fighting ends. Do Western sanctions have an impact on the lives of ordinary Russian residents? People in Moscow have mixed responses. Find out more in just a minute. Former Chelsea soccer club owner Roman Abramovich and Rosneft CEO Igor Sechin were among seven Russian oligarchs added to Britain's sanctioned list today. Britain said the oligarchs had their assets frozen because of their connections to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Officials said the seven have a collective net worth of nearly $20 billion. Despite the sanctions, the British government said that Chelsea can continue playing matches in the English Premier League. 
Abramovich had put the club up for sale, but Britain's asset freeze and sanctions on him bar that process under the terms of the license granted to the club. Britain's Minister for Sport, Nadine Dorries, said the government had issued a special license to enable Chelsea to play fixtures, pay staff, and enable ticket holders to attend matches. She said the government did not want to harm the reigning European and world soccer champions. The government said the license would be kept under review. A tanker carrying Russian gas arrived at the Spanish port of Bilbao today. Despite the cascade of Western sanctions on Russia, one thing hasn't been affected so far, flows of Russian gas to Europe and the funds to pay for it. Europe remains heavily dependent on Russian gas, which supplies around 40% of its needs. It is now worried that Russian President Vladimir Putin could use it to retaliate against sanctions. But Russia pumps gas through pipelines that cross Ukraine and other Eastern European nations, and it requires the revenue, perhaps now more than ever. So far, there has not been any interruption of gas supplies. Russia has been delivering gas to Europe to fulfill long-term contracts. This is according to buyers such as Uniper and RWE in Germany and traders in the Baltics. In January, as tensions with Russia were increasing, Russian gas accounted for almost 6% of Spanish imports compared with 11% in December 2020. Efforts are underway in Ukraine to save artwork from the war. Russian artillery and airstrikes recently damaged the art museum in Ukraine's second largest city. Here are the details. When Russian forces bombed Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, shockwaves shattered the windows of the city's main art museum. Staff are racing to store the museum's most prized possessions in the vault. There are over 25,000 items in our collection. Kharkiv Fine Art Museum's collection is one of the biggest in Ukraine, one of the most valuable. Many of the museum's artworks are by Russian artists. It's simply the irony of fate that we should be saving Russian artists, paintings by Russian artists from their own nation. This is simply barbarism. One of the most prized works is a version of the imposing work by renowned Russian painter Ilya Repin called Reply of the Zaporizhian Cossacks. Basically, it should not be moved. Temperature or humidity conditions are not recommended. Any movement should be avoided. We treat it with great care, but there is not a single window intact in this room. The museum's collection remains intact for now. But because all the windows are blown out, it's impossible to control the temperature and humidity inside the gallery. Staff will only be able to assess the real damage after the fighting stops. Now workers, women that are still in town, we will work and do our best to save it all. We are taking the paintings down and will hide them. We are doing our best to preserve them. Meanwhile, staff at Ukraine's largest art museum in Lviv are also busy packing away its collections. The museum has closed its doors since the war began. Lviv is in western Ukraine and hasn't suffered much from the fighting. But the artworks could still be in danger if the war moves west. People in Moscow are reacting to the growing list of Western sanctions hitting Russia, as well as Russia's own restrictions on foreign currencies. Some say nothing has changed for them, while others say the sanctions ruined their business plans. Russia's central bank announced Tuesday that citizens with foreign currency accounts cannot withdraw more than $10,000 in total over the coming six months. It's a step aimed at easing the pressure on the ruble. 
Some Moscow residents say this doesn't impact them. I think the central bank is doing the right thing. What do we need dollars for in Russia? What are they needed for? You don't use rubles in America, and we will use rubles in Russia. It will not affect me at all, because the limit that the central bank established that every individual can withdraw $10,000 is quite an acceptable amount during hard conditions in Russia. It is not a big deal. Russia has to deal with growing sanctions from the U.S. and allies. Visa, MasterCard and multiple countries also shut Russian banks out of the SWIFT payment system. Life has been ruined dramatically. It is impossible to make any plans. Our savings are now lost. We cannot use them. It's scary even to enter a shop. I live mostly with uncertainty. We don't know what to expect tomorrow or next year, how all of it will turn out, something like that. My plans have changed completely as my business was linked to the dollar and all supplies were paid for in dollars. For now, all supplies have been canceled and all my plans have changed. This hasn't been the same for everyone. My plans haven't changed at all. I believe that everything will be fine. Everything is stable and good. Nothing has changed. My plans haven't changed. I don't make any specific plans. I wasn't going to travel abroad due to the pandemic. Russia has a lot of interesting places to visit. A growing number of multinational corporations are suspending operations in Russia. Those include Apple, Starbucks, McDonald's, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Yet another major financial blow to Russia. Goldman Sachs announced it is no longer doing business in Russia. That makes Goldman Sachs the first major Wall Street bank to leave Russia since it invaded Ukraine. A spokesperson said the move is, quote, in compliance with regulatory and licensing requirements. It's unclear how many people the bank employs in Russia or how much money it makes there. Citigroup has also announced plans to halt consumer business in Russia, but is still supporting corporate clients there, including many U.S. and European companies. Coming up, empty storefronts and businesses for sale are now a common sight in Venice, Italy. Industry spokespeople say it's not just because of the pandemic. Stay tuned for more. The Austrian government says it won't immediately enforce its COVID-19 vaccine mandate. The mandate would have forced most adults to receive a vaccine by mid-March or face fines. The mandate was signed into law in February. It comes about two months after it was announced in Austria's parliament. Austria was the first country in the European Union to enact such a measure. Starting this month, Austrian police would have been able to check people's vaccination status during traffic stops and on the street. Those who didn't have proof of vaccination would have been asked in writing to provide proof or face fines of over $600. For subsequent violations, the fines could reach almost $4,000. Austria's minister for the EU said the law represents an encroachment of fundamental rights that can no longer be justified. But she said the universal vaccine law might be needed in the future. She said a commission of experts scheduled to evaluate the situation and law in mid-June. Businesses in Venice, Italy are still struggling from the shift in tourism two years into the pandemic. Empty storefronts and businesses for sale are now a common sight in the city. Here are the details. 
An estimate says there are around 130 empty stores across Venice, and more than 20 stores around the iconic St. Mark's Square have shut down over the last two years. Industry spokespeople say it's not just because of the pandemic. I believe the problem that involved many businesses, some of which were secular. Some had been here for over 100 years in St. Mark's Square and have had to close their shops. That's due to rent increase. For the shops still operating, it's a daily struggle to survive. This is especially true for the shops that specialize in high-quality crafts. The owner of a bookbinding business says he believes Venice is being invaded by what he calls cheap tourism. We need to take a turn. We need to try to encourage quality tourism, a tourism that can give new light to these Venetian excellences, the Venetian artisans. Otherwise, it will be difficult to survive. There will be a downward trend rather than upward. And that becomes a problem for us as we aim for quality. For a long time, Venice has been grappling with the problem that tourists are visiting only for a day trip. These are often cruise ship passengers who don't stay overnight in the city or spend much in its shops and restaurants. City officials want that to change. In Venice, they often go to St. Mark's Square, take a picture and go back home. We want to aim to have people come to Venice and stay here for three, four, five days or even a week. People who love Venice. And when they go home, they take a part of our city with them. Bringing back a piece of craftsmanship would mean bringing back the Venice traditions with them. Something that symbolizes what Venetian life really is. We need to go back to that. The war in Ukraine is now worrying Venetians as well. We are now in an extremely serious situation, honestly. I do not know what will happen to business owners and shopkeepers and everything. The next big upcoming event in Venice is the Art Biennale. It's due to open at the end of April. On today's health segment, we look at how stress can lead to inflammation and other issues in your brain. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Stress is a common part of daily life, and it comes in a variety of different forms and happens almost every day. We have to juggle so much. Family, work, school commitments, health, money, and relationships. You've probably heard about how bad stress is for your mind and body, but you might not realize how serious of an impact stress can have on the brain. Research has found that stress can produce a wide range of negative effects. They range from contributing to mental illness to shrinking the volume of the brain. Stress depletes your precious brain chemicals like serotonin and dopamine. This causes depression and anxiety. Serotonin is the happy brain chemical that also plays a role in mood, learning, appetite and sleep. Low dopamine causes a lack of zest, enthusiasm and motivation for life. Stress halts the production of new brain cells. This explains why, when we are stressed, we don't think clearly or act in our best interests. Memory problems and a lack of concentration are the hallmarks of chronic stress. Research clearly shows that chronic stress causes electrical signals in the brain to be delayed. This leaves us wondering why, when we put the dishes away, we sometimes put them in the wrong place. Stress can also make your brain small and lead to a toxic waste site in the brain. 
Every cell in our body is sensitive to toxins, but the brain is on the top of the list when it comes to sensitivity. We have a brain filter that normally keeps us safe, but when it's compromised with stress, it can become leaky. It lets in pathogens, poisons, heavy metals, chemicals, and other toxins. There are special cells in the brain that protect the brain from infection and toxins. Essentially, they are part of the brain's immune system. Unfortunately, with relentless stress, these cells overreact, causing inflammation. This inflammation seems to have a role in all areas of disease in the body and can lead to depression. So with that said, keep your health and well-being in check and look into ways to reduce your overall stress. The Library of Congress has named the winner of its Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. This year, the award goes to singer-songwriter Lionel Richie. Richie, now 72, was born in Alabama. The talented singer has won an Oscar and written number one songs for 11 consecutive years. His album sales totaled more than 120 million copies. Back in 1985, Richie wrote the Grammy award-winning song, We Are the World, together with Michael Jackson and dozens of other top artists. The song raised millions in humanitarian aid for African famine relief. Richie said the song's message of solidarity is equally relevant in the year 2022. In accepting the Gershwin Award, Richie called it an amazing honor. Artists Gloria Estefan and Andra Day performed two of Richie's classic hits at the tribute concert. Also present to pay tribute were actor Anthony Anderson and Cuban-American singer Emilio Estefan. The entire ceremony will be aired on public television on May 17th. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.